Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. On today's episode, we will be talking with Professor Ashley D. Farmer, a historian of Black women's history, intellectual history, and radical politics, about the Black Power Movement and really the future of African-American intellectual history and Black studies uh, in the 21st century. Hi. Good. Thanks for having me here. Well, welcome, Ashley. Um, Ashley is also one of my colleagues here. She is assistant professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And she's the author of Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, which is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism during the black power era. And she is also co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition. So you're very, very busy, Ashley. I'm trying to just stay busy. Yes. <laughs> so my first um, question, I know you've been talking about this book for two or three years now, but it's a very important book. And I've actually taught this book in my Black Power graduate seminar Appreciate it. is um, remaking Black Power. You know, what inspired you to do this for research? Because this comes out of, um, you know, your research that you did at Harvard uh, when you were getting your Ph.D. But what inspired you to do this research and um, what when you think about this field that I, I've, I've called Black Power Studies, mm-hmm. what, um, where do you feel the field is going? Because it's, there's so much interesting work happening, mm-hmm. um, so much generative work happening. Um, so these are big questions, but my first is, <laughs> yeah. what inspired you yeah. to look at Black women and Black Power? That's a real... Yeah seemingly controversial subject. Well, too. interestingly enough, um, it was the activists themselves that led me to it. Um, I was actually taking a seminar in African-American intellectual history um, where I did a, a paper on the Third World Women's Alliance, um, which ended up being um, you know, a big foundation of the last chapter of Remaking Black Power. And I interviewed the women in the Third World Women's Alliance, Gwen Patton, you know, who passed away recently, Frances Beale, who's also still a very active um, writer and organizer. Um, and they were the ones that told me, if you want to tell our story, you've got to go backwards, right? They saw themselves as the ideological and organizational heirs of um, the black radical tradition ranging from, you know, the 1950s on. Um, So it was at their kind of behest that I started to broaden my frame and think about how I could understand um, black feminism and black women's intellectualism in the broadened frame of black power. And I really realized there weren't very many options. It was either, you know, women serving breakfast or there was Angela Davis, you know, who I love and is wonderful but is here and can write and does write everything that you need to know about her. But what about, you know, kind of the everyday women that were part of major organizations? What about the women who um, we think or we kind of overlook because they were considered to be part of very patriarchal organizations? Um, We shouldn't discount their organizing or their intellect, you know, just because um, it isn't so readily apparent. Um, So when I started writing this book, which was at the time my dissertation, um, there was really only your book and a few, you know, sprinkling of other articles, Bozy Woodward's book on black power studies. So it's really quite amazing to see how the field has proliferated, even in the time that I researched um, and wrote this one book. Um, I think it's going in really exciting directions. You see a lot more local grassroots studies now than you used to. And, and I, yeah. I want you to unpack when yeah. you say black power yeah. for our listeners, yeah. unpack black power and also black radical tradition. OK, um, so when I'm talking about the black radical tradition, I'm talking about 
um, a, br- a range of intellectual thought um, that does not necessarily start in the 20th century. I would date it, you know, in the you know 17th, 18th century, um, but primarily concerned with placing black people at the epicenter of an insurgent practice of kind of uprooting the existing order, you know. Um, so it means different things in different times. You know, what, what is constitutes radicalism means different things in different moments. Um, but I think invested in black liberation and invested in um, kind of remaking the world with black liberation in mind. Um, when I'm talking about black power, I'm also talking about an ideology, but also a movement. Um, we think about black power more broadly. I think we're talking about central tenets like self-defense, self-determination, community control. However, I think these things can be practiced um, throughout the 20th century, but kind of get into a groundswell where there's organizations and movements and um, language and symbols around them in the 60s and 70s. So um, kind of a distinction between a larger ideology um, and an actual kind of concentrated movement of the late 20th century. Would you put the 1950s in there, too, in terms of black power? I mean, I I argue that, but would you put the 1950s in there? Yes, I do. I think that I think that that is when you start to see people really um, laying the groundwork in a different way. So I don't see it as the same kind of organizing that folks were doing in the 20s, 30s, 40s with Garveyism and the Communist Party. And I see them, the people that were working in the 50s as really being either the leaders or sometimes the foundations of the 60s and 70s. And sometimes that meant that they were guiding younger radicals. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it meant that um, they were out there in the streets with them, thinking yeah. about somebody like Louise Thompson Patterson that yeah. was, you know, in both places. But um, I do think I would say, particularly after 55, you know, I would say that that you start to see a groundswell of black power activism. And the two people that come to mind for me are Lorraine Hansberry mm-hmm. and Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So I yeah. look at Lorraine Hansberry as really the founder of what mm-hmm. people call the black arts movement. Yeah. And you can see it just in her writings. Absolutely. And certainly Malcolm as the activist and mm-hmm. the intellectual yeah. Yeah. part. Also, um, Robert F. Williams, um, yeah. Mae Mallory, also yeah. really great examples of yeah. folks that are doing that kind of, you know, and, and, and activism with a very kind of um, black power, but internationalist bit, you know, in that moment of McCarthy era, you know, repression as well. Okay, so they're talking about radical citizenship. They're talking about, some people are talking about radical feminism, Marxism, liberal integrationism, even. Um, when you connect that to this black intellectual tradition, one, when you when I read your book, You really define intellectual broadly. So it's not just the people who've got PhDs. Mm -hmm. It's people who are, um, you know, uh, Antonio Gramsci's organic intellectuals as well, but also in cultural practices as well. Mm -hmm. So it's people, arts, you know. So talk to me about how you define and really exemplify in your work black women's intellectual practices. Yeah, so I think this was a really, um, this is a really important question. So, and one that, again, I was driven to by the activists themselves. Um, When sitting and talking and doing interviews for Remaking Black Power, the activists would tell me, oh, I wrote so-and-so, or I drew this, or I did this. And I can't tell you how many times I had looked over something and I myself had overlooked their contribution. And so you ask yourself, why would you overlook that? It's because you're taught that evidence of intellectualism looks a very particular way. It's usually a speech, an editorial, a treatise. It's certainly not art. It's certainly not satire. It's certainly not the women's column of a book um, or a newspaper um, series. So I really had to go back and look again. And when I did, I saw that what they were telling me was true. It was right where they said it was. And they were saying, you know, when I drew that picture, I was trying to say or convey, you know, these are the politics that we should aspire towards and these are the people that should be involved. And that's how you get, um, you know, 
artists like Gail Dixon, who um, who drew for the Black Panther newspaper, um, these wonderful um, depictions of women in hair rollers and domestic work, also engaging in internationalism and anti-colonialism and politics. Um, I think it's also how you get great folks like Alice Childress, who uses um, a character like Mildred, a domestic worker, and really uses her to articulate a radical black internationalist politics. Um, so it really... Um, in the book, I'm really trying to help people rethink what counts as an intellectual, um, what counts as intellectualism as a thing, and then think about the fact that if you know racism and sexism exist, and that bars black women from certain types of outlets, how do we think about and look about look for it differently in different terms of evidence? So that leads me to my next question. Um, when we think about what is going on in the field of black power studies, in a lot of ways, it's sort of mapping these different genealogies. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some le- levels, it, it's sort of an intersectional mapping, but also it becomes an interdisciplinary mapping because you think about race, class, gender, sexuality, and people are starting to map that. But then you think about um, one, different disciplines and then different different themes. Um, the disciplines, I'm thinking about history, African-American studies, but also sociology, anthropology, political science, law and society. But then the thematically, I'm thinking about things like um, religion and black power. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about things like uh, the prison industrial complex and black power. So I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to discuss what do you think in terms of the most um, generative kind mm-hmm. of work uh, still needs to be done? What What do you think is being done very well? Uh, what do you think there's a paucity? Um, and this could connect whether we're thinking about black power in terms of rural communities, mm-hmm. um, urban communities, whether we're thinking about black power bottom up or top down, because right. that's one of the things I always made an argument of that. And now we have books about black power and um, African-American professionals who are sociologists or social workers. Mm-hmm. We have just a whole yep. group of, um, you know, Dan Berger's book on prisons, mm-hmm. Robin Spencer's work, so many. And I think that this 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 uh, scholarship joins a conversation with this wider field mm-hmm. of African-American studies and African-American right. history. Yeah. Um, things that I think are being done well. I think that there is um, far more, like you said, an interest in um, the writings and activism of individual folks. We're starting to see um, readers come together. You know, used to have to just kind of pull their speeches out of nowhere. Now people are putting together readers that kind of um, allow you to see a given activist kind mm-hmm. of range of thinking. Um, I think we're moving more towards biographies. There's a historian named Mary Phillips, who's um, producing a biography on Erica Huggins, for example, um, which I think is good, particularly biographies of African-American women. Um, I would love to see more um, kind of big national studies that don't focus on big organizations. You know, it's difficult because the archives that we have available are typically those big national organizations. (laughs) Um, But I think we see increasing evidence that there's a lot of community, um, whether that be rural or urban, um, expressions of black power where they're taking national conversations and Mm -hmm. applying them very, very locally. Um, So I'd love to see more individualized studies of that, but also... um, you know, kind of a broader national scheme. Um, I think black power in education is moving, but I'd love to see it more. Um, Russell Rickford obviously has a great book about the independent school movement. Um, but And there's also like Ibram Kendi's book on, you know, the black power on campus in terms of how we get black studies. Martha Biondi's book. And Martha book. Biondi's book, yeah. Um, but I think we are right for um, more local level studies about that or how people, um, particularly not necessarily at the college level, but particularly at the high school level, are doing that. 
that there's a um, great woman named Dara Walker who's also writing about um, high school students in Detroit and Black yeah, Power. Which Jean Thea Harris and yeah. other people mm-hmm. have written chapters mm-hmm. on, but not yeah. a whole study. Yeah. But what do you think? You know, one of the things here, I think you're exactly right, but I, I think that we still don't have great studies on the Black Panthers. We still don't have um, definitive studies on Congress of Racial Equality. No, we still don't have we have we have classic studies on all these things, mm-hmm. and and I love Waldo. Um, uh, Martin and, and Josh Bloom's, um, you know, Black Against Empire. Right. But we still don't have definitive histories of SNCC. You know, I love yeah. Clay Carson's book. Yeah, but it's, um, yeah. um, and, and I love the new stuff, Arcan SNCC yeah. and Wesley well, Hogan's Hogan, yeah. work. Yeah. But um, what do you think about that in terms of, even though these are very symbolic, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes we might say as historians, we have overemphasized yeah. them. And I, and I understand that critique. Mm-hmm. But do we really know in a granular way when... August Meyer and Elliot Rudwick's study of core is still the best study yeah. of core. Yeah, we can definitely not, use one on know, core. Yeah, b- yeah, Brian Purnell has yeah. a great study in Brooklyn core, mm-hmm. but these are case yeah, studies, Yeah, Fraser right? has one in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cleveland, yeah. So, so yeah. what do you think? I would love to see a comprehensive study of core, especially because core is such an interesting group in the way it trans, it, it moves from, you know, the Freedom Rides, you know, kind of yeah. early days into kind of a black power um, mindset. Um I mean, I think this trouble is that there's so, you know, there's so much variety and diversity that it would be, I mean, probably a multi-volume kind of scenario um, to be able to do. Um, but I would love to see one of SNCC. I'd love to see one about um, CORE. I'm a little less invested in the Panther one, to be honest. And wh- why, why is that? Because <laughs> um, there's so many chapters, yeah, and I still think we don't yeah. we don't know what happened. And, and you could also have a... a a black woman-centered Panther yeah. study, yeah. because so we see it with with in in some chapters of your book, but Robin Spencer's yeah. um, book, but it's focused uh, on is, Oakland, is, yeah, is very very much, mm-hmm. and, and even you know Donna Merch and, mm-hmm. and her work. Yeah. Um, if you look at Panthers, especially after 1970, yeah. women are dominating, running. Mm-hmm. Um, yet we don't know in a granular way what they did. We have snippets and great case studies, yeah. but... Yeah. I mean, I would maybe be more invested in a women's version of it. I just think that there's enough out there on the Panthers that you can pull it together. I don't okay. know that I need a, a a comprehensive study. I also just think that, I mean, from what I can tell in, in the work that I've done about the Panthers, like, it's so dependent on where you are. You know what I mean? That I just don't know um, if such a synthesis really makes sense in the same way. Yeah. As a historian of black women, can you discuss like what happens when we focus on black women and how does it um, how does it force us to reframe sort of African-American intellectual history um, and also the writing of African-American history? I mean, so I think it helps us reframe in a couple of ways. Um, There's there's certainly an a. How should I say? We idolize a couple of black women as the key thinkers. Yes, um, usually those folks are educated, not exclusively, or, you know, kind of, um, you know, prolific in their intellectual production. Give us examples. Um, when so, you say I mean, a I think of everybody from like um, uh, Mary Church Terrell to, I mean, somebody like an Angela Davis. There are people that we kind of hail as these icons, and they're wonderful and great, um, but it doesn't give us much about how um, everyday black women just navigated these ideas, which ones they thought, which ones they didn't. And we kind of let these big kind of um, intellectual icons stand in for the thinking of an entire era, you know? So What happens when we look at the black quotidian in terms of women? Um, I think that you see there's a lot more pushback against things like respectability politics. Um, I Tell think, us what that is. Um, Unpack that. Uh, I see respectability politics as both um, a protest strategy and a means for survival, right? So a protest strategy in the sense that um, if you know that 
you are being if black people know they're being held to white middle class standards, there's a way in which you're you're kind of better than them at it. You beat them at their own game and you counter, um, you know, kind of the derogatory and demeaning ways in which white people view you, talk about you, think about you. Um, it's also, I think, a way of survival sometimes. Um, you have to um, fit in with what the status quo is to get from day to day, to get the job, to um, make money, you know, et cetera, to get an education. Um, and so there's the question there is, you know, how much agency do people have in that kind of scenario? Um, and black women, I don't think any black women that I study, even those who I think are very grounded in radical politics, don't sometimes dabble in respectability politics when it suits you. But um, I'm very wary of putting it on um, black women as if they did not know what they were doing and were not deploying it with that kind of level of agency. Um, but that being said, I think that, you know, especially in the probably from 1850 to 1950, that's kind of the dominant frame from which we understand black women and certainly black women intellectuals. Um, and there has been some great studies that of the working class that show that that's not the case. But I still think I think it's the predom- pre- predominant image of black women from that standpoint. Um, I also think that you get to see all these spaces where black women theorize and produce um, when you look, you know, so it might be a mother's group, you know, and, uh, and on the surface, it looks like a mother's group, but they all are brought together over being politicized over, you know, a t- treatment of a mother, the treatment of their kids in school, et cetera. And then they start to produce analyses of the world. And pathways for thinking about how education, how childcare, um, how uh, marriages should look different. And that is a form of intellectual expression that I think we often overlook because it looks like a quote unquote mother's group, you know. Um, and so I'm very invested in thinking about all the different ways and all the different spaces we should think about black women um, producing knowledge. And that goes to a kind of overall goal that we're not going to see black women strictly as apolitical or anti-intellectual simply because they're not engaging or producing knowledge knowledge in the ways that kind of fit the white heteropatriarchal standard in that way. Okay. Yeah. When, when you think about African-American intellectual history, um, where do you see that going? And, and it's convergences or divergences with whether it's black power or civil rights or African-American labor history. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, when you think about African-American women's intellectual history, sometimes that's feminist, sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes people conflate those things. Absolutely. So... Where do you see it? Um, So I think African-American intellectual history is having a renaissance. You know, it really is. Um, And I'm not entirely sure what accounts for that, but I like it. Um, Well, I think I have some ideas. I like it. I like it. Um, um, But one of the things that is great about that field in particular is that it is getting diversified. And what do I mean by that? I mean that um, it is looking at people who are certainly working class, but it's also looking at people outside of the United States and thinking about how they and their correspondence with African-Americans shape race and politics, both in America and in the world. Um, I think it's reaching back further. Um, We're kind of rethinking what it means to um, be an intellectual and also an enslaved person. You know, if you're barred from reading and writing, what does your knowledge production look like? Um, And also um, finding uh, African-American intellectual thought in spaces that are not completely black. You know, so mixed-race organizations and groups that people might have been a part of because that just might have been the best situation for them in that particular moment. Um, Your comment about the conflation of feminism and black women's intellectual history 
um, made me think that one of the things that we're really lacking is great intellectual histories of conservative black women. Yeah. You know, um, Leah Wright Rigger writes about the Republican Party, but we don't have a lot of um, conversations about groups or individual thinkers that really fall on the conservative end of the spectrum, whatever that may mean for that given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that we really need to explore if we're invested in um, understanding black women's thought in all of its complexities in all of its ranges as well. I want to ask you about being um, a, both a public intellectual and, um, you know, trying to organize um, younger groups of scholars, a younger generation of scholars. Think about people like you, Keisha Blaine, um, Ibram Kendi, people I know and at times have, 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 have worked with as well. Um, African-American um, Intellectual History Society. What do you think the uh, both opportunities are right now in, in 2019 and moving forward and some of the perils of doing that and sort of navigating our, our way yeah. um, in the sort of ebony and ivory towers of the academy. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of the things that's great about the African-American Intellectual History Society or AIHS as we kind of conceived of it is um, that it's a space that's not, um, that is committed to scholarly rigor around black people's ideas, broadly defined, um, but doesn't have to deal with the kind of um, the ivory tower processes of getting information out there. You know, it's very accessible. Um, it allows us to have conversations across disciplines and time periods. Um, and, it, you know, it's up on the Internet for anybody to see for free, which is, you know, part of our goal in doing that. And it really came from us just having these conversations, you know, amongst ourselves and seeing that other people were doing this kind of blog format and thought, you know, we could do that too. Um, Chris Cameron, who founded it, was um, really amazing in the vision for it. Um, so the pro of it is that I think more people read my AIHS stuff than will ever read books, articles, etc. You know, it has a level of accessibility um, that nothing I'm going to write in the academy has. That being said, um, I don't think the academy has yet caught up to how to deal with that part of somebody's um, kind of public profile and also somebody's, you know, genre of stuff that they write. Um, it's not easily classified um, and it's difficult to kind of quantify in terms of impact. But it certainly worked, though. It certainly worked by every stretch of the matter. I think that the Academy is still struggling to figure out how to how to quantify that work and what that means for in the bounds of the Academy. Um, outside of the Academy, it leaves you open to a lot. Um, there are there's not a week that passes where, you know, um, those of us who lead the organization aren't dealing with somebody who thinks that it should be done differently. Um, and that, um, you know, sometimes the, the, those escalate to, you know, rather serious issues sometimes. Um, so it does leave you open to everybody having an opinion about what you wrote, everybody thinking about what you should be writing, um, how everybody thinks you should be running the organization, et cetera. And sometimes that can really be an issue when it comes up to the academy when, you know, people feel like there's kind of a cognitive dissonance there. But it's really important in terms of institution building mm-hmm. and going beyond ourselves. My, my final question is, for, for students, for, um, you know, for listeners, for people who are asp- aspiring intellectuals, however that might look, they might be artists, they're just interested in ideas. What, what's your advice um, for them? And, and why is the study of both black history, but black women's history um, so, so important? Um, my advice would be to read widely and read everything. You know, don't limit yourself to a particular genre, discipline, um, anything like that. Everything that um, black people have and are producing can help really help think about black intellectual history, but also broaden your sense of what intellectualism is. Um, and 
I have to be honest, I forgot the last part of the question. Well, yeah. just yeah. just w when you think about yeah. um, why should we study? Oh, yeah. Why should we study not just Black history, mm -hmm. but a lot of your work is focused on Black women's history, Black women's intellectual mm -hmm. production, their theorizing. Yeah. Why should we study that? Yeah, I mean... It's, it's, it's kind of a pat and dry answer, but it rings true. It's just that people that are usually most oppressed have really great solutions for how to get out of a mess, you know? Um, I think that there is a lot swirling around, particularly in this political climate, where people um, wonder how we got to a certain place or don't understand the powers that be or don't understand the interest or, you know, players in a particular decision, law, et cetera. Um, and typically, if you go back and typically look at black history with black women's history, there's someone that's been grappling with that for the better part of two centuries, but also offering you really a viable way forward. I often tell my students um, they want to play book for the revolution all the time and the playbook is history right it's 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 people have already done a lot of this work thought about what's wrong and test that out some of the solutions to it sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't work but you're never starting from scratch if you have that kind of basis of understanding of how people have navigated it before so black women provide a playbook yeah for... or a blueprint for what for possible ways or options in which you can move forward productively and um you know imagining the world differently yeah. All right. So we'll leave it. We'll end it there. Black women and black <laughs> women's history helping us radically reimagine the world and yes. the status quo. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you Professor for having Ashley me. Ashley Farmer, um, who is here at the University of Texas at Austin and whose latest book is Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. And she is co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, both very important books which people should purchase. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.